Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. This is The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Saying goodbye to the Queen, the beloved 96-year-old monarch died on September the 8th after more than 70 years on the throne. Wise, gracious, dutiful, charming, dignified, knowledgeable, kind. Just some of the many ways that she's being remembered here and around the world. Former Lieutenant Governor David Onley, the Queen's representative in Ontario from 2007 to 2014, joins us now as we mourn the loss but also celebrate the life of our gracious Queen Elizabeth II. Welcome to the feed, Your Honour. A pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you very much, Anne. Your Honour, Queen Elizabeth had a real connection to Canada and to its people. What do you think that she saw in us that perhaps we didn't even recognize in ourselves? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I think she appreciated the vastness of this country, and I'm not sure that many Canadians do. You know, we're more likely to take a vacation in Florida uh, than we are to go to Vancouver or down east to uh, Newfoundland. And it's only when you travel like that, as I had the great privilege of doing, uh, during my term as Lieutenant Governor, that you can really appreciate the vast distances in this country um, and, and the beautiful geography that we have that is uh, just so completely unique. Uh, I mean, British Columbia is unlike uh, anything in Ontario, and, and equivalent to that, um, down east, uh, New Brunswick is just an absolutely beautiful province, as is Nova Scotia. And they're um, they're unique in all the uh, in all of Canada, and, and given the traveling that she did to this country over 22 visits, um, I think she saw uh, in our geography and our, our natural uh, content, if you will, uh, things that most Canadians just don't have an opportunity to see. So I think that was the start point, and and I think as well there was just a, a love for this country. Uh, given our past history of uh, supporting Great Britain in World War II. Um, This was not lost upon her uh, or other members of the royal family in the previous years uh, for the role that we did play insofar as World War II was concerned. Let me ask you this, if you could rewind a little bit. What was it like? Mm -hmm. What was it like meeting her for the very first time? And how did you and your wife prepare for this? I don't know that there's any way of really preparing for it, aside from one little bit of politicking that uh, I was able to integrate into our our meeting. Uh, quite frankly, there's a certain amount of nervousness. I mean, first of all, just being in Buckingham Palace is a tremendous experience. It's unlike any other place in the world. I mean, typically, families have pictures of relatives on the walls of their living room or dining room or recreation room. Uh, that's fairly typical for most of us. Um, but when you get to Buckingham Palace, and you see the vast, long hallways and the uh, tremendous height of the ceilings. Um, you become aware that these giant paintings uh, on the walls of uh, previous members of the royal families, uh, previous kings and queens, that's their family set of pictures. 
Um, and it just immediately takes you back. It certainly caught uh, my attention and my wife Ruth Ann's attention. And so that kind of sets you up, if you will, uh, to go into the room, uh, which is the ante room outside of the room that Her Majesty would use to meet different representatives. We were met by an aide-de-camp who's uh, named Andy, who started to give us a, a rundown of what the process was going to be uh, when we went in to see the Queen. And the, where we were sitting, and he was briefing us, was only maybe 40 feet away from the door that we would go through, uh, the double doors that we would go through to meet the Queen. And as we were sitting there, uh, the door opened, uh, and out came the German ambassador, who had just finished presenting his official papers uh, to the Queen, and they stopped briefly at the door and chatted a little bit. And as we looked, we were just uh, gobsmacked, uh, I don't mind saying. <laughs> and this is all while Andy is explaining the procedure to us. And um, Ruth just said, and read my mind, and she just said, Oh, Andy, could you repeat everything from the top? Uh, I just didn't hear a word you said. <laughs> and we, we didn't, because we were looking at the Queen as, you know, there she is. Yeah. And uh, so uh, then we were given the doors closed, and then we were given the signal, and they escorted us quite uh, forward to be right outside the doors. And then the doors opened. And in we went, in we went, and you know I did a head bow, Ruth did a curtsy, and at that moment the Queen took the chair that Ruth was scheduled to sit in, pulled it a little bit closer to her chair, and then fluffed the pillow. And it was just such a natural, friendly family type thing to do that it immediately put us uh, at ease. So after chatting very very briefly, there was just a, a momentary bit of silence. And at that point, Ruth pointed out the diamond brooch that the Queen was wearing with more diamonds than I've ever seen in my life. It was just a stunning piece of jewelry. And the Queen picked up on it very quickly uh, and said, oh, yes, thank you. This was the brooch that my mother wore in the tour of Canada in 1939. And so she obviously inherited it. And because, well, we're Canadians, um, she wore it uh, for our meeting. And when we got back to our hotel that night, we turned on the TV news, uh, of course, not expecting to see ourselves. There was no question about that. But it was the other events that the Queen had gone to that day. And uh, sure enough, she still kept wearing the Maple Leaf diamond mm -hmm. brooch. And so, you know, it went from a degree of nervousness to uh, more of a relaxed feeling uh, as we engaged in conversation with the Queen. Uh, and somewhere along, and we were there for about 25 minutes, um, and somewhere along the, the way, um, because the Canadian election that occurred the night before, the federal election of 2008, I had been briefed on what the results were. Um, and at one point, the Queen simply said, now, I understand that you have an election coming up. And it just went through my mind in a split second. She knows that there's an election coming up, but in fact, the election has already been held. So how do I correct the Queen? <laughs> and, of course, you don't correct the Queen. And I just replied to her, yes, Your Majesty, that's right. In fact, I have the results for you. Oh, well and, done. <laughs> uh, and then I briefed her on the election results. And it took me back many, many years earlier in grade 10 
seeing a picture in a history book uh, on a representative of the crown uh, on a sailing ship going back to the mother country to brief the monarch on what was happening in the colonies. And I thought, this is unbelievable. Here I am briefing the queen on what the Canadian election results were. <laughs> and, and fortunately, I, I had the numbers and I had some highlights. And of course, um, election buffs will recall that was the election that uh, Stephen Harper won by a very good margin and uh, the Liberals were badly beaten. And when I told her that part and gave her the numbers, she was quite surprised because, of course, typically, uh, just by mathematics and, and history, the li Liberals have typically done far better in most elections uh, over the years. So she was quite surprised about that and then wanted to know what did I think the next steps were going to be for the new government. And I, I mean, I had to speak on my own behalf, and I, I did because I certainly was not representing the uh, Conservatives. I was representing Her Majesty. So I, I gave a synopsis the best way that I could, and um, then we moved on to different topics. And uh, so the, the time just flew by, and uh, we, we felt that she was just as gracious as she could possibly be. And, um, you know, uh, a session that neither of us will ever forget. Former Lieutenant Governor David Onley, you were the last person to say farewell to the Queen and Prince Philip when they departed yes. Canada for the <laughs> final time in 2010. Was that meaningful for you? Oh, it certainly was, because the logistics and the matter of protocol were set up such that we were in line with the, the Premier and his wife. And so the Queen came by and shook hands with Mrs. McGinty, then shook hands with Dalton McGinty, then shook hands with Ruth, Ruth Ann. And, as a, and it was a fairly quick handshake. They, they weren't stopping. She wasn't stopping for um, any conversation. And um, then it came to me. I was the last one. And as it got to me, out of the corner of my eye, I could see the security people and the other aides um, talking into their uh, hand uh, to their shirt cuffs, which, of course, they were basically talking to each other, giving the sense that it was time to go, that we were going to be board they were going to be boarding the plane in a few seconds. But instead, the Queen stopped and talked. And we probably had a two- or three-minute conversation. And I think the only reason it didn't go any longer, one of them, was that it was just blisteringly hot. And it was the only time in my life that I thought I was, might pass out due to <laughs> heat stroke. And... Um, but uh, I'm not sure exactly why she stopped to talk so at such a length. Uh, it was probably because, unfortunately, uh, I've been dealt out of a couple of the events that the politicians had organized and was more than a little bit uh, annoyed with that. But uh, typically that had happened in the past. Uh, it's unfortunate. It, it bespoke a lack of understanding of, as to who was the Queen's representative. It happened in 1939 when the Premier, uh, the Prime Minister and the Premier uh, pushed the Lieutenant Governor aside, and he actually didn't participate in any events. I at least was able to participate in some of them, including a visit um, and a reception in the Lieutenant Governor's suite. But I think she just wanted to make up for the things, because she certainly knew, and I heard from her staff, she certainly knew that I should have been in attendance on the basis of protocol at uh, two of the other events, but were was kind of shoved aside, to say the very least. So that was great, because, and I, and I say that not in a, a rejoicing way, but it was just a recognition that she 
knew what had happened and was not um, not really pleased with it. Uh, and then got on the plane, and um, off she went. And um, Ruth and I and my chief of staff and uh, chief aide-de-camp, we went, uh, at that point, we were not only exhausted from the heat, but starving. And um, so we went to a nearby restaurant and sat down and had you know several glasses of water and then uh, ordered chicken and fries. <laughs> and uh, then we went home. And when we went home, I just turned on the TV set um, to CNN, and there was the queen live from New York City at mm. the United Nations giving a speech. Wow. And I was just dumbfounded that mm. uh, this amazingly resilient woman uh, could be standing in the sun for as long as she did, uh, then fly to New York, uh, and then give a speech at the UN. So there, she was a, a woman of remarkable resilience. And, um, you know, I, I thought of that event uh, on many occasions. And here's a perfect time for me to read a part of one of my favorite speeches that she broadcast from Cape Town. As This was before she was the queen. Yes. Quote, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong, end quote. Oh, it just gets me every single time I hear it. It's true, and uh, it gets me too, and I often quoted it during my time as Lieutenant Governor. Um, the remarkable thing about that is uh, on many levels, but one of the remarkable things is she was still a princess at that point because her father had not passed away at a, a horribly young age of just 56. Uh, and then, of course, she was thrust onto the throne uh, at the age of 25. But, you know, what a comment, whether my life be long or mm. short. Uh, I will be your servant. And, of course, you know, that uh, bore out to be true because the effectively the last uh, event that we have any pictures of was her meeting uh, the new Prime Minister of Great Britain, Liz Truss. Uh, and so right up to two days before her death uh, at age 96, she was performing her duties. And I heard Princess Anne on a, a documentary last night uh, talking about how um, there there's never really any downtime for the Queen. Uh, there's no, never, and this will be the same, will be for uh, King Charles as well, that you just continued on with your duty 365 days of the year. There are always documents to read. There are always events to be, uh, you know, um, assessed. And uh, so, you know, it, it just is amazing that her life certainly was not short. It was long. And she was on duty right up to the very end. I want to talk about the funeral on Monday. What can we expect to see, hear, and to feel? Well, uh, if, you know, if some of the events I saw earlier, uh, one of the events I saw on uh, Thursday, uh, excuse me, on Wednesday of last week, um, was the royal family, the, the Prince Charles, uh, Camilla, uh, and uh, the children, um, as the uh, as the coffin was carried in and uh, left in, um, you know, for a, a great procession that occurred. Um, and of course, being an advocate for accessibility, it was I was glad to see that there was a ramp uh, for the uh, the. Uh, these soldiers who carried her to the position of rest. Um, 
as opposed to requiring them to walk up the steps. Uh, that's beyond imagination. But, you know, people lined the streets uh, to catch a glimpse of her being brought in and, um, you know, hundreds of people inside the hall. And um, I think we're going to be seeing numbers like we've never seen before on a Monday. They, they said that the lineups for King George VI, that there were 300,000 people who lined the streets of London to watch his funeral procession. And even taking into account uh, the increase in population since 1952, um, I think we're going to see, you know, over a million people line the streets, and it will be a, a tremendous outpouring of affection. Your Honour, will the monarchy survive without Queen Elizabeth? Oh, no question at all. Um, to begin with, um, to change things constitutionally in Canada, uh, is just an, an elaborate and difficult procedure requiring the approval of most of the provinces uh, and then the full approval of the House of Commons. So, I mean, politically, logistically, was there ever a time in Canadian history where on a single issue, um, both the House of Commons and the provinces could agree with anything? And the answer is no, it's never happened. And so, you know, uh, until and unless the monarchy ends in Great Britain, uh, that's something that we're going to have and that will very much depend in terms of popularity. It's very much going to depend on the way Prince Charles, uh, now King, King Charles III, is going to handle himself, which I think he will do with a high degree of excellence. Your Honour, Former Lieutenant Governor David Onley, I can't thank you enough for your wise and wonderful recollections of our beloved Queen Elizabeth. Thank you for joining us on The Feed. Thank you so very much, Anne. Coming up on The Feed, COVID and back to school, helping students catch up and saving for education. Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. You're listening to The Feed. School is back in session. The various levels of learning are firing on all cylinders. And for the most part, students are in person, in the classroom, face-to-face, and in many cases, in a full house. Most would agree that this is a good thing for young learners psychologically to be together, to socialize, to interact, and to absorb lessons as a group. But what about the elephant in the room, the classroom, if you will? COVID-19. How are students, teachers, and support staff to protect themselves with the virus still a worry and a concern heading into the fall? Dr. Zane Chagla is an infectious diseases specialist at St. Joe's in Hamilton. He joins us now on the feed. Good to have you on the show. It's the first time that we've worked together, and it's a pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me. So most Ontario students returned to school mid last week without COVID restrictions. So we're now 10 days into the school year. What are your thoughts on how everyone involved in the school system is going to protect themselves from COVID-19? I mean, I, I think we, we really have to reflect on the school year going into September 2020 versus the school year going to September 2022. And 
the marked differences we have, right? We understand a, a lot more about the disease, but more importantly is that the immunity to this infection from 2020 to 2022 has markedly changed with a number of adults and children getting vaccinated with, you know, a good amount of the population uh, even having COVID and, and acquiring immunity that way. You know, I, I think, again, as we head into the year, we talk about, you know, measures that may improve kind of from a general standpoint, things like ventilation, uh, monitoring for symptoms, staying home when sick. Uh, and, you know, some of those measures where the, the benefits now in a era where people have had a significant amount of immunity, like masking and um, physical distancing and cohorts, um, are a bit less uh, less important in that sense. And so, you know, getting back to a school year, first of all, getting kids back into a school year is absolutely important for the benefits of all of it. Uh, but I think, you know, again, that, that there's a lot more uh, potential for stability through the school year, given the amount of immunity in the population to really allow for more of a normal school year without restrictions. Dr. Kieran Moore a couple of weeks ago announced that people who test positive for COVID-19 no longer have to isolate for five days. So that means that they can return to school or to work once the fever is gone and the symptoms have improved for at least 24 hours. That makes some parents, even some students and also support staff teachers, a little bit uncomfortable. There is this concern that, that the virus can and will spread faster and more easily inside a classroom setting. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to start thinking about, you know, the situation we live in, right? And, and you know, the reality is, is people are going to have COVID around us. That's, that's unfortunately, you know, the fact that this is incredibly transmissible. But the fact that people's vaccines and other efforts have made, you know, the disease much different, that it's very mild in a lot of individuals. And so, you know, I, I think it's it's hard to say that, you know, everyone was testing and isolating appropriately even prior to this announcement. And a good chunk of the population may have been walking around with COVID with minor symptoms who haven't been tested uh, or did one test and was negative and thought, okay, that's the end of it. Uh, and they've been out in public, right? And so I think the difference between that and then and now is, um, you know, really recognizing that, that, you know, COVID is not that much different than the other respiratory viruses we see and bundling them all together to see if you're feeling unwell, stay home, go back when you're feeling better. It's going to be really difficult as we get back to COVID, along with influenza, other respiratory viruses, all circulating at the same time to kind of figure out which one it is and apply isolation advice for one versus the other. If you get a runny nose, cough, and, and some fevers, you know, and you have one negative COVID rapid test, does that mean that you're, you know, COVID negative and you have the flu? Does that mean you're COVID positive and you had a false negative rapid test? And so I think, again, this practicality of, you know, let people recover, make sure that we give the space and the, the ability for people to stay at home for a few days to recover uh, and then let them come back. Yes, it's not the perfect strategy to reduce all infections, but we're not in a place where we're going to be able to reduce infections much further. And so, you know, again, outweighing the societal benefits, outweighing the absenteeism for students, outweighing the, um, the you know, the, the fear of isolation, which is actually worse than the disease itself for mm -hmm. some people. You know, I think, again, this is really frames it on, on that stage. And we're not the first jurisdiction to do this. You know, Denmark, for example, dropped many of the, the isolation requirements, even dropped its testing for people who are low risk 
you know, many, many months ago, and, and they followed a similar pandemic curve to us. So there is some proof in principle out there that it's not going to somehow destabilize the pandemic. And as you look at the landscape of learning here in Ontario, one institution, and this is at the university level, stands out. Western University announcing a few weeks ago very strict COVID policies that students have to have had at least three COVID-19 shots and they would wear masks without fail in the classroom. That kind of flies in the face of everything you've just said. Yeah, and and so Western has actually back down a little bit to, to put that policy in place for January of 2023. And, and you know, the, the recognition that now we have a bivalent booster. And so it gives, you know, uh, people a chance to consider that as well as part of their series. But I think, again, it, it really, you know, the, the immunity landscape out there is very complex. And, and, you know, we have data from people that have had you know, one infection and uh, a vaccine from one infection, no vaccine, three vaccines, you know, that they're all starting to play on the same field in terms of immunity. When we look at blood donor data, you know, almost everyone has antibodies one way or another. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think when we get to that point where we're saying, look, this isn't a naive population anymore, that vaccinated, unvaccinated people can transmit and spread this virus. Uh, and again, what are the, the downsides of people not being able to attend post-secondary education? You know, there's social, there's economic and financial opportunities that are unlocked with the ability to have a post-secondary degree. We start really weighing harms here. And, and again, Western's policy stands above really any other institution, even in healthcare across the country, uh, in terms of a vaccine policy. And so you know, I think we have to think seriously. Is, you know, boosting 18 to 25-year-olds really going to change the pandemic? Or, you know, are we really focused on making sure that people have access to higher-level education, which is incredibly important and I think should be the focus of, of the, the next few years rather than punitive policy? And speaking of boosting young people, kids age 5 to 11 are now eligible for the booster shot. And earlier this week, Pfizer uh, was approved for use uh, in pediatrics uh, for six months to five years of age, following the heels of Moderna. So now we're targeting the very young crowd. Will it make a difference in the pandemic journey, do you think, to, to vaccinate and to boost such young people? I mean, again, I think, you know, especially for those populations that have not been exposed to this virus, there is still, you know, a good amount of data to suggest that that uh, um, even getting a single dose of vaccine markedly reduces hospitalization risk amongst them, right? So, you know, I think the biggest part of this pandemic has been our healthcare utilization and, you know, the fear that we could ever get to a point where hospitals were overwhelmed, that clinical services would have to shut down uh, and and that, that piece. And so, you know, there's absolutely benefits for, for certain populations, particularly, again, if they have no immunity to this virus, to consider getting their vaccines. Um, you know, is it going to change the way this virus spreads? Probably not. I think we're seeing the data from pediatric vaccines really suggesting that they help with reducing severe complications. They may not help as much in reducing transmission. Um, but at the same time, look, it's another tool. It makes sure that really every population, you know, uh, is able to get benefits from, from vaccination and get immunity uh, one way or another. And so, you know, we really should be embracing, you know, the fact that we have so many tools in 2022 uh, as part of our ability to open and get back to normal. Interesting what a difference a couple of years plus can make. So we went from no vaccines at all to vaccines that made a big difference to, to a series of them. And now we've got the Omicron-specific vaccine that started going into Ontario arms on Monday. I mean, it really is 
quite incredible, this vaccine journey here in this province and in this country. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we're talking about vaccine technology now that matches current variants that are circulating. The original vaccine caused so much pandemic stability, you know, kept people out of hospital, even if it wasn't matched very well, you know, to the Omicron variant and, and everything going forward. Now we're talking about vaccines that are much more better matched to uh, the variants that are circulating. And again, the ability to develop them in three to six months as compared to a year to two years in that sense. So, you know, I think, again, we, we have to look back and say we have so many tools here. We're able to protect more vulnerable populations. You know, even as a person that works in the hospital, the face of COVID has changed. It is not this ICU disease that, you know, took young people in the prime of their lives. Um, and so, you know, I think we are we're very fortunate to be able to have these options. And, and again, you know, this is progress moving forward that we get to a point where all the tools we use are really going to keep the healthcare utilization down to a minimum. And the operative word is option, and, and you just used it. And it, it wasn't an option in the early going. It was mandatory. Now we look at options when it comes to vaccination. It, it's What do you say to people who still do not believe in vaccines for for COVID-19, who refuse to be vaccinated for COVID-19? There's still room for positive engagement. Um, Everyone has their circumstances. Some people need the conversation. You know, even there are folks I know that I see on the front lines that I've had relationships with that didn't get vaccinated, that decided to get vaccinated six months, a year, two years later. Um, And so, you know, I, I think we really just have to make sure we reach out to those folks. They understand their risk. They understand what's available to them should the need come. You know, we're talking about mRNA vaccines, but in Ontario and Canada, we have approved a a non-mRNA platform in Novavax as well. Uh, And so, you know, people who are hesitant around uh, uh, mRNA vaccines have other options out there. Um, You know, and and I think, again, we we have to think about vaccines as a positive, uh, encouraging experience more than anything else. The only way this is going to be sustainable is not pushing people against the wall, not mandating people to get it, but letting them come there from a position of trust, letting them come there from a positive decision-making standpoint, um, you know, and, and again, you know, using that as a way to make it much more sustainable into the future. Dr. Zane Chagla, what are your concerns as we move into the fall and what would you consider worth celebrating when it comes to COVID-19 this fall? Look, I, I think there are still vulnerable populations out there that are being missed, um, you know, that don't know that they're eligible for certain vaccine updates, that um, don't know they're eligible for treatment should they ever become infected with COVID-19. And, you know, I, I think we've seen the theme throughout um, this pandemic that those, uh, you know, who are marginalized, vulnerable, lowest income, you know, really being the ones that are left behind the most. And so, you know, I I think that population still has risk within it and, you know, does require a little bit of outreach and a lot of support, especially as the demand for things like a bivalent vaccine is high and and they may be pushed out to the margins even more. Um, But, you know, at at the same time, look, again, we're sitting here talking in September of 2022, I, you know, there's two therapeutic options for giving high-risk people to make sure that they don't get sick with COVID. There's, you know, a number of vaccines now, including updating vaccines now, you know, and again, you know, uh, really going into this uh, fall, knowing that we have so many tools to keep people out of hospital. I can't say that this is, there's not been medical progress for a single disease that's ever been like this in that sense. And so I think that's an incredible success for all of us. 
I really thank you for taking the time to speak with us. It's been fascinating, Dr. Zane Chagla, Infectious Diseases Specialist, St. Joe's Hamilton. Please come back again, and thank you very much. Stay safe, as they say. All the best. Take care. After the break, barriers and bridges in Canadian learning. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Back to school often comes with additional expenses. Jim Lang now with money-saving tips from KPMG. Well, any parent like my wife and I who have a child in college university knows about the challenges of financing that kid in post-secondary education and the tax implications. To talk more about it, thrilled to be joined by our good friend Aaron Gillespie, a partner with Enterprise Tax at KPMG in Canada. Aaron, how are you? Very good, Jim. How are you? Good. Uh, my wife and I are just dealing with this. We have two kids in university, and uh, it's a real juggling act with kids in post-secondary education and the financing and money involved. Uh, sometimes it's overwhelming. Is that the feeling you get from your clients? Yeah, no, no question. Uh, and the cost of education, as you know, Jim, has gone up for sure in Canada, and it is tough for people to keep up with it. One thing I will say Jim, to try to support them that they should think about as early as possible when they have children is the RESP. The RESP is a great savings tool for education in Canada. Generally, what happens is the parents can contribute up to $2,500 a year and get a 20% grant from the government, so a $500 grant from the government toward their child's education. And then if they do that every year, they should be able to grow a nest egg uh, that the children can draw on. It grows tax-free while it's in the plan. And one of the great things about it as well is that when they draw it out, when they make withdrawals to fund education, there's a couple of great things. One, it can go toward many expenses, not just tuition. It can go toward their their uh, uh, dwellings and whatnot, where they're staying and their books and things of that nature. And it can, um, when it comes out, it gets taxed to the child. So the amount that uh, came from the government, the grants, as well as the income that it earned in the plan during, while it's in there, uh, also get taxed to the child. And, of course, generally those children in, in university or college, they may not have high income. So that income may come out and, and be taxed advantageously rather than being taxed to the parents. So that's one tip I'd give to parents is start that RESP as soon as, uh, as they can. And, and when you're doing that, I mean, say it's sometimes money's tight at the beginning when the child's really young, but even if it's a few hundred dollars a year and you build on it, I would tend to think after 18 years that would build up to a nice old nest egg. Exactly. That, that's the idea. And then you can also catch up too, Jim. So it's one of those things where if you miss a year or you weren't able to contribute in a certain year, you can catch up in later years as well. So you're absolutely right. You've got, let's say, 18 years, as you've said. And uh, that's a long time for money to grow tax-free and compound and whatnot. And uh, so, again, the early, earlier they start, the better. And a great savings tool. Speaking with Aaron Gillespie, partner enterprise tax at KPMG in Canada, about students and post-secondary back to school. And, I mean, I guess the question is my wife and I are always scouring come tax time is what tax breaks are available to our kids or any other students out there who are in post-secondary education? Yeah, Jim, there's uh, the tuition credit that uh, has been around for a long time. It's not quite as lucrative as it once was. Um, there was something called the education tax credit that has kind of been, has gone away. And so, especially in the province of Ontario, where we are, 
It's not quite as lucrative, but the tuition credit is still there, and uh, it does provide a tax credit for students and reduces their uh, the income tax that they would pay and the income they earn. There is a new credit that I, I wouldn't mind mentioning. It just came in a few years ago. It's called the, the training tax credit, and this is for folks who are over the age of 25, uh, and it's a little more expansive than just the tuition credit, which is focused on tuition toward a uh, you know, post-secondary diploma or degree. This can bring in new things uh, like you know, training for a specialty, like say, uh, you know, a first responder, for example, oh. a firefighter, a, a police person, someone who's not maybe seeking a diploma or degree, but uh, someone upskilling, uh, if you will. And it's a new tax credit as well, again, called the training tax credit, not something folks should watch out for. I mean, when you have families come to you looking for advice, is there one or two things you say before anything that is the foundation? You had mentioned the RESP, but what other smart things can a family do to make sure their their child has the finances they need to get that education they want? Well, one thing uh, that I've certainly seen in recent years is look out for scholarships and applying for scholarships. Uh, oh, yeah. There is a lot of scholarship money available in Canada. And for those uh, dedicated students who are working really hard, they may be able to access money through scholarships. And something neat about scholarships that changed well, several years ago now, but it wasn't always this way, is that scholarship income generally is no longer taxable to the student. So they're getting that scholarship money and they're getting it tax-free. And uh, so I would encourage people to certainly work hard, uh, students to work hard, and look out for applications for uh, scholarship and bursary money because there is that kind of money out there available to them. Aaron, I'm glad you brought that up because I know that the Canadian Legion offers one and different uh, organizations and businesses offer scholarships that until my kids were leaving high school, I was not even aware of or my wife. And then as they got into school, we're like, hey, we started looking into this. That's right. Uh, definitely something to keep an eye out for. And to your point, sometimes you need to be proactive and apply for these things. The, the other tip I give is, is keep organized. So keep receipts. Uh, make sure you're organized. For example, even the tuition tax credit the slip that the, the student requires to make that claim, they don't mail it out to you like they used to uh, back in our day, Jim. They, what they do now is you've got to go out to, through the online system uh, through the school and download it and things like that. So make sure you keep organized and keep all your receipts. And when you look at OSAP money that some families and some children get, is there, is there a, a more effective way to use that money to maximize it for the kids' benefit as they're into school? Well, one thing I would say about the OSAP uh, loan program is uh, interest deductibility. So the interest paid on those loans can be deductible against oh. uh, the income that students uh, earn. Um, and and um, one thing about it, though, is that it's got to be a government program. So it's got to be through OSAP, like you said, provincially, or there's a federal program as well. Um, it, it, in, in order for that interest to, to uh, I said, deduct watch a tax credit is what, what they get. But in order to qualify for that tax credit, it's got to be a government loan. So you've got to go through those programs that I just mentioned rather than through a, a private lender, let's say. So that is a good tip is to watch out for uh, that loan and making sure that it's probably through a, a government loan and that way you get that tax credit. Aaron, I know some students get pretty good summer jobs as they're going through college and university, and sometimes they make more money than they need. When is a good time for these students as they get towards the end of their matriculation to start thinking about an RRSP and saving for their own future? Yeah, you've, you've got the children to go uh, to have that RESP, so that'd be the first thing is when they have children, they would again want to start right away. Um, I, I will say a uh, plan that, that uh, should be considered is the 
using your RRSP. So those that are saving into the RRSP, and that might be something that that person you mentioned might be able to do, is uh, save in their RRSP and withdraw from their RRSP. That's something that is new in the last few years called the Lifelong Learning Plan. And what it allows individuals to do is to draw on their RRSP up to $20,000 over their lifetime and use that money toward the cost of uh, tuition. And I think it's a great new plan because, as you said, funding tuition and, and the cost of education is high. Uh, this is another tool in the toolbox is making contributions to your RRSP, saving up, and then drawing on that uh, in order to fund education. And uh, it's nice. You don't have to pay it back right away. You've got to make contributions back into your RRSP over a 10-year period following uh, graduation. So another great tool in, in uh, the student's toolbox to help fund education. Aaron, this is all invaluable information because as a parent, I know my wife and I, we like to think we're informed, but every year we're like, oh, I didn't know that. I, d I mean, this is why KPMG in Canada is such a great resource for people because even the most quote-unquote informed parent will miss things if they're not careful and don't use a professional. That's right. We, I appreciate that, Jim. I'll give one more to folks out there is uh, moving expenses. Oh. Moving expenses are a deductible expense. So when you move away to school, to attend school, they are deductible. Unfortunately, in that case, they're only deductible against the income from school. So that would be like that scholarship income I mentioned, which is probably not taxable anyway. But if we think about it in the reverse, if they move back home for a job, uh, that is where it is deductible against that employment income or self-employment income. And I think that would be another tip I'd give them is expenses incurred, even just simply meals or uh, mileage, uh, things like that to move back to attend uh, or to, to uh, earn that employment income or self-employment would be deductible against that income. So that'd be another one I'd give to folks out there. And Aaron, with the cost of housing the way it is, I know a lot of families and friends of ours where their kids did that, move back home to stay at home and start work and saving money. Exactly. Yeah, no, we're seeing that more and more commonly for sure. So save those uh, receipts as well and and uh, every little bit counts at the end of the year. You know, it all adds up and makes a difference for sure. Aaron Gillespie is an outstanding partner, Enterprise Tax, with KPMG in Canada. Go to their website to get more information. Thank you for your insight in helping families and students save money in what is an expensive time for kids going to school. I appreciate it, Aaron. Yeah, thank you, Jim, and great talking to you today. Canadian parents are worried that their children have fallen behind in school. Kevin Frankish with the apps to fill the gaps. New numbers show that the majority of Canadian parents are worried the pandemic has caused their children to fall behind in their education. This was a study commissioned by Photomath. It's an app that, by its own description, is the most used math learning app. And Jennifer Lee is the chief growth officer at Photomath and joins me right now. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about this study, uh, how it came about be, being done and how it was done. Yeah, so we um, did a survey with over 500 Canadian parents. And what we found um, was that a lot of them are really concerned about how the pandemic has impacted their students, um, their confidence level around learning, um, and that there's kind of just general apprehension about how kids are prepared for the education system today. So, you know, I think you mentioned kind of that the headline, which is um, that about 57% of Canadian parents are, are currently worried that their kids have fallen behind um, in their education due to the pandemic. 
And a lot of them, also 43%, feel that their confidence, particularly in math, has diminished since the pandemic has happened. Yeah, and, and that's the thing when these studies come out. Sometimes you, you look at them and say, hmm, I wonder if the numbers are even higher because this is definitely something. The, the numbers are not wrong, you know, I, I don't think. Uh, this is definitely a problem. And here we are in, in a lot of uh, jurisdictions in the second week of school, and teachers are finding this out. Yeah, you know, we found actually that this is not a new feeling by parents, right? Um, I think the, the study also found that um, 60% of parents don't feel that they are that they have the skill sets to be able to help teach um, their kids math in the right way. But this is something that we knew was the case even before the pandemic happened, right? And it's very understandable. As an adult and a parent, you're working, you're busy, um, and, you know, you don't always necessarily have time to re-study or re-learn math. I know as, as a parent myself, when my kids come home, if they have something like a limit function, I have to re-teach <laughs> yeah. um, myself how to do that. And, and actually, that's where the, the app actually started from. Um, it was from a, a dad's own experience. Our CEO and founder, John Marstable, is an engineer by training. And he one day had to help his 14-year-old son um, with some algebra homework. And he said, look, as an engineer, someone who's confident math, if I'm struggling because I don't remember all these things, mm -hmm. I also have a hard time explaining it well to my son. They're teaching it slightly differently now. Imagine all the other parents out there. And that's actually how PhotoMath was born. So, you know, this concern and this struggle has existed for a long time. I think some of this was just amplified during the pandemic as many parents, um, you know, all of a sudden became the math tutor or teacher that they didn't plan to be for their kid. Um, and then, you know, as it's kind of prolonged over the years uh, or the pandemic kind of extended um, longer than many of us thought, it just kind of continued to amplify the situation. Yeah, I can tell you I have four kids and once they get past grade three math, that's it for me helping them out. I can guarantee you that. It, it is it is tough, and it's tough to make sure that, that we're not giving our kids bad habits, too. When you're helping them out with math sometimes, you know, maybe we're not the best at it, and we're giving them our bad habits, so they should, they should learn the right way. Now, a lot of parents in your study said they themselves uh, struggled when they were younger, and that's got to be frustrating for a lot of parents, too, because they see the same thing in their kids, but they don't want them to struggle. Absolutely. We, we actually found that for those parents um, that also struggled themselves with math uh, as a youngster or as a student, they were 21% more likely to say their child also struggles with the subject. So as you, you, know, as you mentioned, um, we want what's best for our kids uh, and recognizing that if we feel inconfident with math or struggle with a specific subject, that can often get translated down um, because we just don't feel we have necessarily the capacity um, to help our students in the same way. So let's talk a little bit about the app. Uh, how How is it um, used in conjunction with schoolwork? It, it does, does it go off in a separate direction or does it just use currently what the child is undergoing at that year, at, at that time? Yeah, so we aim to help students with the math that they are learning currently at school. And the way that it does that um, so the mobile app uses a combination of AI technology um, and a lot of computer programming um, and insight from a bunch of math R&D and math teachers that we employ to kind of understand how do we help students with the problems that they're currently trying to understand and get them to that 
aha moment of realization. So the way that it actually does that is um, you, use the, you download the app, and opens it up, and you can scan or take a photo of whatever math that you're currently trying to solve and learn. And then we, if it's a problem, we help provide step-by-step explanations on how to approach that problem with a real focus and emphasis on the why am I doing this step or how do I do this step in greater detail um, and making sure that students can have support around the math that they're currently trying to learn. All right. More information, photomath.com. Jennifer Lee is the Chief Growth Officer with Photomath. Thanks so much for this time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. It was a pleasure. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.